Good morning. You're tuning in with Global Current on 89.5 FM WSOU. I'm Svetlana and welcome to the show. Today we'll be hearing from staff writer Liz Leonardo on the latest plan for peace in Palestine, Admiral Hayes with Tien, followed by Morgan and Stephanie with insights on the Libyan oil embargo. Take it away, Liz. After two years of closely guarding the details of the Mideast peace plan, President Donald Trump unveiled what has been dubbed as the deal of the century at the White House on Tuesday. Alongside Trump was Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, but no representatives from the Palestinians were in attendance. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict that the peace plan aims to resolve dates back to the end of the 19th century, when the 1948 Arab-Israeli War resulted in the division of the Holy Land into three parts, the State of Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. Uprisings from the Palestinians who were already living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip began in 1987 and their fight to attain self-determination, improvement of their standard of living, social betterment, and the respected place in the region and in the world has continued for nearly a century. Spearheaded by Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, the plan outlines the administration's realistic two-state solution to address the said conflict. Among the several goals included in the peace plan, the administration mainly envisions a demilitarized Palestinian state living alongside Israel, more security responsibility and less security footprint for Israel, a four-year land freeze to secure the possibility of a two-state solution, and a political situation wherein no Israelis nor Palestinians will be uprooted from their homes. Trump allocated $50 billion to implement these goals, as well as to build a new Palestinian entity and open an embassy in its new state. During a White House ceremony, Trump stated that his vision presents a win-win opportunity for both sides, a realistic two-state solution that resolves the risk of Palestinian statehood into security. Although Trump had discussed with and gained the approval of both Netanyahu and his political opponent, Benny Gantz, there was no participation from the Palestinians in the development and approval processes of the plan. Ever since Trump ordered the U.S. Embassy to move to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv in December 2017, the Palestinians severed relations with the U.S. With regards to the unveiling of the peace plan, the Palestinian Authority reportedly regarded the ceremonies as a conspiracy aimed at undermining the rights of our Palestinian people and thwarting the establishment of the state of Palestine with East Jerusalem as its capital. Trump's peace plan, which seems to promote a pro-Israel bias, could not only perpetuate the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also worsen tensions between the U.S. and Palestine. Some analysts point out that the timing of the plan's release, as well as its pro-Israel nature, reflects the strategy of the two administrations to salvage the political image of their respective leaders. Netanyahu is currently facing corruption-related criminal charges that has been complicating his re-election, and Trump is facing the final stages of his defense in the Senate impeachment trial. Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammad Shtaye said in a cabinet meeting on Sunday that this plan is to protect Trump from isolation and Netanyahu from jail. It is not a peace plan for the Middle East, but rather a self-security plan. 
Like any other peace agreements, the Mideast Peace Plan is expected to be built upon the self-interests of the involved parties. However, the possible bias towards only one side of the Israeli-Palestine conflict reflects a disregard for Palestine's long-standing self-interest of attaining national rights. Because of this, the Hundred Years' War on Palestine is nowhere near its end. This is Christine Leonardo reporting for The Global Current. Thank you, Liz. Tian, take it away with Admiral Hayes. I try to be able uh, first, and if you remember what I said a little while ago, the leader's responsibility is to present the, and, and build the correct environment. Yes, leadership. All right? Mm-hmm. So very important. As a person, as a teacher standing in front of students, my responsibility is to build the correct environment for those students. Mm-hmm. Right, a student that allows them to uh, be able to speak their mind, present their ideas, uh, you know, show them different things they have to do, why they have to do them, how all these things fit together as they're trying to get it and work through cybersecurity. All right, so yes. cybersecurity, how can you do that? You can do that in any place. Build the best learning environment for people. Build the best learning environment for people. I didn't say the learning environment was in school. Mm-hmm. It's build the best learning environment anywhere for your kids. Build the best learning environment for them. That is the key. So when I walk into class and I take my years of experience that I have, I try to relate my experiences to cyber. Okay, mm-hmm. I try to relate them uh, to why it's important, what it really means, what are these different facets, how then do you make a determination of, of how I'm going to try to solve problems, what are the best ways to solve problems, how do you do analysis, I was an intelligence officer so my life is about doing analysis, hmm. how then do I transfer to them the idea of how to conduct understand and do analysis to be able to get to solutions that are executable all right so if you get if you if you say hey i've got this problem and what happens is you solve the problem all right well the execution of that may be just write the number down all right or the execution means that you have to do something all right what is it you have to do once you've solved the problem once you've got this solution whether it's to help and you give that information to someone Mm -hmm. and they're going to make a decision and go off or you're going to have to make a decision and go off and do something, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so what does that mean? And so you want to be able to get to a solution, a solution that is executable, whatever that executable may end up being. And in looking at that and helping people to be able to get to that and showing them how to do analysis and having them understand leadership principles so that they then can continue they then can grow in their life all right are all parts of what we want to be able to do and how people want to become better i always try to be able to talk to people and talk to them about getting better because i as i told my group a long time ago i said hey you know what I can objectively and subjectively 
make a determination, okay? Mm-hmm. So I can go from where I am to someplace else and say this is objectively or subjectively, whichever way I want to look at it, better. So I can look at that and I can say it's better. I cannot make a determination if this is the best. It is impossible for me to take, for me to make that determination that this is the best. I can only see if it's better. Hey, you know what? This is uh, this is better than the last place that I was at. You can make a determination. This is the best place I've ever been. Subjective. You don't know if this is the best place in the whole world, do you? You can only look at it very subjectively. So I can say this is the best place I have ever been. But I can't say it because I haven't been to all the places. Mm-hmm. So I can't say this is the best place in the world. I can say it, but I have no context to be able to say if it's real or not. So let's keep it real. This is the this is the best place I have ever been. Not as this is the best place in the world. All right? Yes. Subjectively, because I haven't been to the world. This best place I've ever been. This the most beautiful place I've ever been. Or, hey, this place is better than any place I've been. All right? So this is really important because if, you are, if you're grounded in understanding that, then what you're able to do is have a much more analytic aspect of what's around you. So I never told my group, a group of people that I led, all right, and I led some huge numbers, mm-hmm. 1,500 people, all right, I never told them, hey, we are the best. You know what I always told them? We need to get better. And this is what better looks like. All right? Because there's always going to be a challenge. And you always want to get better. And I don't. I said, this is what better looks like. This is a point that we need to be able to get to. That's better. Because only someone outside the group outside your organization can make a determination if you're the best. You can't yes. make that. Alright? So we can I can yell, hey, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. I can't say we're the best until we some somebody from outside looks at us in comparison to other groups and says, You guys are the best group. <laughs> then we're the best. And I can say it with confidence and understanding. So when I was the commanding officer of the Navy and Marine Corps Intelligence Training Center, we were voted or we were we were given the title of the best school in the United States Navy. We won that. All right. They came and they took a look at us. They said, hey, you guys are the best schoolhouse in the United States Navy. Now we're the best. That was good. I never told the group, hey, we were the best. I always told them, we were, hey, we're pretty good, and we're going to get better. <laughs> yes. So, so I, it, 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 it's, it's a nuanced feeling in there, and I understand that. But what you have to do is, if you think you're the best, then where do you go from there? Nowhere. <laughs> it's hard. Nowhere. That's exactly right. I'm the best. Where do I have to go? Uh, I don't know what's, what's next? better than the best. But, hey, if you're always looking at it that, hey, we're really good, but we can get better, that's what we're after. We're always looking to improve ourselves.
ourselves, our capacity, our capability, our, our smart, because the difference between intelligence and smart, how smart we are, how we execute, all of those things are the other part of that. And so even in a classroom setting, even in a classroom setting, that's what you want the students to understand. Mm-hmm. Hey, I got an A out of that class. That's great. All right. That's really wonderful. You got an A. Doesn't mean you're the best. It's just a great. <laughs> yes. That's all it is, man. It's just a, hey, I put an A on there. You got a 92.7 or whatever. Yes. 93, I think, are. You can still do better. 93 and above to get an A. All right. And, uh, and so you got a 93.2 or whatever. Hey, that's great. I gave you an A. You can still do that's better. Yeah, you can do better. There's room for your improvement. Always. Right? And on top of that, that 93.2 or whatever you got or 94 that you got, it's absolutely subjective to the instructor. Yes. All right? So then you're like, oh, well, it really doesn't matter, does it, other than you got an A. It's like, oh, I got an A. It really doesn't. Because another instructor, just as competent as the other person that gave you the A, could have given you an A minus. Oh, yes. So you go like, oh, well, that's good. I got an A. I got an A from that person. Mm -hmm. All right? And you have to, and you start looking at it in those particular aspects. It doesn't mean it's bad. It means that, hey, I was able to fool him. Or her to give me an A or whatever, but the idea is that hey, I still got the A. I'm happy about it, but it doesn't mean you're the best. Yes. All right. It only means you got an A. And so what you want to be able to do is always talk about improving and getting better. So that's what I teach my students. I work through that whole process, just like I'm telling you, guys. Hey, look. You know, here's what I walk into my class. If you do the work, and I tell my class, if you do the work. You're not going to fail. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not here to give you an F. I'm here to be able to get you through this class and get you a grade that is commensurate with the effort that you put in. Right? That's what my job is. Yes. And if I do my job well, there's going to be a whole bunch of A's in here because people are going to want to do the best they can do. The best they can offer. That's right. The best they can offer. So there's going to be a a few A's because I'm I'm looking at their effort their capacity, their capability of to be able to do it. And if your person says, oh, well, you know, this is really hard, and I go like, wait a minute, it's not really hard. You're making it hard. Come to me, talk to me, and we'll make it simpler for you. Yes. So you can try to get to your potential. I'll work to make it simpler for you to work to get to your potential. And I do that with the students all the time. Oh, I'm having trouble. I don't know what to write about, blah, 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 blah. Got it. Understand. Even though I gave you somebody matter. Great. Why don't you write about this? How does that sound? Specific title to be able to give them something to write about. <laughs> and they go like, oh, 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 that sounds good. You think you can work that? You know, I think there's a lot of information out there you can gather and then write this, you know, easy 10 page paper real quick to be able to talk about this. And this is what I want. I tell them what I want in the paper and what they have to do. And they go and they, you know, find it and they write it and they give me a paper and I don't judge them down because I help them. Okay. I just look at the paper. Did you write well? Darn it. Did you do what I asked you to do? And did you come up with something unique in that analysis that you had to do? Because all my papers, in the end, you're doing analysis. Yes. I want to see you take data, do it, and come up with something else and look at it across the board. I want you to do that. So the idea is I work that with them. I do it. If they do well, hey, you know what? 
that final pay paper is worth 50% of the grade. Okay? So that's what you're focused on. The other things are little papers and other stuff and all that and that. And most of the time, you're going to get good grades on that because it's just coming right out of the readings and I just have you do this to be able to understand the readings of what we're doing. But that paper, work that one, and the A can pop up real quick. That was a beautiful remarks. Well, <laughs> thank you for joining us today, uh, Admiral yeah. Haynes. Thank you for all what you said, your wisdom, your expertise, and most of all, your service. Thank you. Our last segment is with Stephanie and Morgan. Hello, I'm Morgan Huber from The Global Current. Thank you for tuning in to 89.5 FM WSOU. I am here with our senior analyst, Stephanie Miller, to talk about the recent oil blockade and crisis in Libya. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Morgan. How are you? Good, good. I'm glad you came in here to discuss with us current international news right now. And speaking of this current um issue that we are currently encountering. So just keep y'all updated in case you don't aren't very familiar with what's going on. So this past Saturday, forces loyal to Eastern Libya military leader Khalifa Haftar, as he is known, has blocked oil exports from the country's main ports. And of course, this has overshadowed um, the peace conference that was recently in Berlin, so that has affected that. And also, it might have some major political and economic repercussions on the country and its neighbors. And what exactly do you think about that, Stephanie? Well, to put it simply, Morgan, it's a little bit of a problem. Libya is a huge oil exporting nation. It has the largest reserves in Africa, and the majority of those reserves are exported to European markets, roughly 85%, I'd say. And the biggest challenge that Libya has faced until now has been maintaining production in the oil fields themselves. Libya has been ravaged by conflict and war, and when they're not dealing with just that, they're also dealing with sanctions, and overall just past disagreements with foreign oil companies have been a constant issue. The blockade itself has slashed their oil production by 75% in a single week. So Basically, as far as Libya's exports are concerned, they're dead in the water. Yeah, and that, that I can definitely see why that would be a big issue. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm aware that Libya had been producing it was about 1.2 million barrels per day of oil in recent months. And of course, all of these fields lie in areas controlled by the eastern base, you know, Haftar's eastern based uh, Libyan National Army or his government. Because since the death of leader Muammar Gaddafi's death in 2011, there's been no centralized government in Libya. There's been the western side and the eastern side. And since this blockade, how, how do you think it's going to affect uh, Eastern Libya economically and politically compared to Western Libya? Well, Morgan, something to keep in mind is that it's not just going to affect Eastern Libya. It's going to affect all of Libya. As it stands right now, I think roughly 52% of Libya's oil production facilities are nationalized. So all of those production capabilities go directly to the Libyan government, if there is a Libyan government to speak of. So already we're going to see a huge economic downturn. Actually, at the moment, I think the BBC reported that oil tankers 
who were in the ports when the blockade happened stayed there for like a couple days, but now they're turning around and heading back to where they came from. So we're seeing these tankers leaving ports empty-handed, and here's the thing, Morgan, these tankers are not tiny little ships either. They're capable of holding three million or so barrels of crude oil, and that's all gone. So we're not just going to see an effect in the Libyan national economy. You're going to see an effect just across the European Union states who do consume Libya's oil, and that's an issue as well. Yeah, definitely. Of course, oil is a huge commodity wherever you are, and to see a country that has been so rich in oil and seeing how it's currently war ravaged at the moment, it's definitely going to amp up the conflict over on that side of the ocean. And of course, from what I've heard, the blockage was believed to be a protest against Turkey's decision to send troops to shore up Haftar's rival, the head of Tripoli's UN-recognized government, Fayez al-Suraj. How do you think this will affect uh, this current situation? Well, I can definitely see where you're coming from in terms of the assumption that this blockade is because of Turkey's choice to send troops to Libya. But Haftar hasn't made public his reasons for this blockade, according to Bloomberg at least. There aren't any advanced negotiations taking place to end this, and it's looking like this blockade could actually go the distance. These departing tankers demonstrate that buyers on the international market are losing faith in the blockade lifting anytime soon. And personally, if I'm a warlord and I want to hit the government that I hate the most, and I'm, I don't I want to hit it where it hurts, I'm going to make sure that they can't export the only good that they have. Yeah, I see what you mean by that, because it's, of course, very important. You take out those oils, then they are in big trouble. So I can definitely see where you're coming from from there. So definitely I could see a power move, but a very costly one at that, mm-hmm. seeing how it could affect you know, the oil industry as a whole all over the place. And, of course, uh, looking at that with all like the war going on, after months of combat, uh, more than 2,000 people have died, according to the Wall Street Dur- Journal and Middle East Eye. So over 2,000 people have died so far, but a ceasefire uh, took effect on January 12th. And do you think that the oil blockade would have happened if the ceasefire had not occurred? I think it would have happened regardless, and I'm going to tell you why. Ceasefires in Libya as a whole haven't worked at all in the past year. Like, as you said, like, the situation in Tripoli especially is what the UN has called a humanitarian disaster. And I think that the peace conference that was held in Berlin a couple weeks ago on the crisis They were trying to figure out how to work towards a durable ceasefire, and that meeting actually ended with Haftar and his generals storming out before an agreement could even be brokered. So I don't think we're going to see a diplomatic solution to this anytime soon. Yes, and speaking of uh, diplomatic solutions, uh, this crisis just overshadowed this past Sunday's conference in Berlin, a peace conference, you know, everybody was there, United Nations, the EU, the AU, uh, everybody pretty much except the U.S. was there trying to extract a pledge from world leaders to stop getting involved in this Libyan conflict, whether it be through supplying weapons, finances, troops, and of course, uh, how do you think the oil crisis uh, would have affected this conference? Well, This conference, I think, 
was brought to summit because of the oil crisis itself. And I think that's really important to think about when we look at each like multilateral institution's response to this. I know the EU specifically has been trying to regain a foothold in Libya since Turkey and Russia started supporting opposite sides of the conflict. The UN mandated arms embargo has not been respected in the conflict whatsoever. Last summer, I think France was caught like low-key trafficking arms like to Haftar, which was obviously not an issue. And of course, you've got like the refugee crisis that's still an issue and everybody in the EU is still fighting with Italy about where to disembark refugees coming from Libya. And it's just a problem. So I think that the Berlin conference was a truce, not so much a ceasefire. We haven't seen any mechanisms to begin sanctioning people who violate the truce, which which was violated, as we know. We haven't seen sanctions on the embargo, and more, most importantly, I think we haven't seen sanctions for people who have violated international humanitarian law. And I think that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, definitely concerning everything going on in that part of the world right now. And just looking at all of the countries and places within the EU and AU that are getting involved, um, just to break it down, how exactly have they been interacting with Libya in recent years as led to this conference? Well, it depends on who you are. I think just across the board, nobody wants to deal with Libya, not in any way that will lead to a tangible solution, least of all the United States. Like, I think that since Benghazi the United States is kind of pulled out of North Africa. Um, I know that we don't have any diplomatic presence on the ground in Libya whatsoever. And maybe that could be an option in the future. I think that the US could get ahead of their inaction in Libya and their failure to act perpetuating terrorism and conflict and a power vacuum by reopening diplomatic negotiations with the country. And that's not perfect because, yeah, Benghazi was a thing, but a presence on the ground supporting the UN mission especially could go a ways to generating international consensus behind the UN-backed Libyan government. Yeah, and I can definitely see where you're coming from and seeing how the United States has definitely taken a more solitary approach, I suppose. They've been pulling out of some more foreign relations recently uh, in these issues. But hypothetically, if the United States were to get more involved in the Libyan conflict, how should and will they do so, do you think? Um, should they get involved? Or how should they get involved? That's an excellent, that's an excellent question. Personally, I say no. We're the people who created the power vacuum and we don't need to be there. I do think that because the UN does have a mission in Libya at the moment and they do have a presence on the ground, it would go a little bit of a ways to restoring our lost reputation in the region by funding that mission. Another option could be, well, to fund the mission, but also to have the mission actually lobby for and ensure constitutional referendum take place in the country before any national elections. Give the people of Libya a voice in the government building process. I think that would be incredibly important. And coinciding with that, we could also impose sanctions on people who obstruct the constitutional and electoral processes. Yeah, definitely. And that's definitely a very interesting way of looking at it. A def definitely um, a very intriguing solution that you came up with. And of course, going back to home base and looking at Libya um, and exactly with the crisis right now, do you think they will be able to recover from this crisis? And how do you think they will do so? 
Loki, I don't even think we can talk about reconstruction until we figure out a way to end this crisis. And that's looking like that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from. It's very difficult, especially when you bring oil into the mix, of course. Mm-hmm. And really, just because this has been going on for years now, it's just crazy. Definitely really crazy. And just looking at the division and the civil war going on in Libya, it's very difficult and very sad to see. And hopefully it can sort something out. And just looking at the recent conference, uh, the, U- the UN EU conference they had. Uh, what is your view on the outcome and how do you think Libya will will react ultimately to the outcome of this conference? Well, we know how Libya like re- reacted to the conference. They, they stormed out before an agreement could be brokered and that's because Khalifa Haftar is a warlord who enjoyed the support of the CIA for so long. And now that the US is not involved in the conflict, he feels a little bit betrayed. And I think he feels like the entire world is against him because, well, I mean, that's true. The entire world is against him, it seems. So ending the peace conference really shows that he's not willing to employ a diplomatic solution to the crisis. Yeah, and of course, that's probably only going to make the the situation more difficult than it already is with everything going on, with going up against al-Siraj and everything that's going on right now. And of course, the oil crisis is only making it worse, obviously. And it's looking at all of it. It's going to be probably a long and difficult road, but hopefully wishing the best for whatever comes through. And really, do you have any other, anything else to say regarding this? Uh, Not at this time. Thank you so much, Morgan. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Again, this is Morgan Huber. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Current. We hope you have a wonderful Sunday. That wraps on this week's show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show couldn't be made without executive producer Bella Fisher, technical producer Brittany Segura, technical assistant Jason Marieski, interview producer Tian Fan, news editor Jared Dang, analysis editor Stephanie Miller, And special thanks to our sound engineer, Emilio Soto. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 FM, WSOU. See you next week.